0: All right. So, on to our topic today. Who are the Puritans? Next slide, please. Who are the Puritans? Uh, What comes to mind when you hear the word Puritan? Uh, It's hard to think about another religious group that's more malign today, Uh, maybe televangelists. Um, Puritan has become a negative adjective. If someone is described as puritanical, it's not a compliment. Uh, H.L. Mencken, a journalist for the Baltimore Sun in the early 20th century, said, A Puritan was someone who feared that someone somewhere, somehow, might be having some fun. (laughs) Garrison Keillor of Lake Wobegon fame said that Puritans came to America in the hopes of discovering greater restrictions than were permissible under English law. (laughs) Those are just two examples of, of the popular negative stereotypes associated with the Puritans. In popular culture, Puritans are considered to be humorless, compassionless, self-righteous legalists who lead joyless lives because of the religious restrictions they placed on themselves and others. Oh, and most likely they were hypocrites. Uh, By the time we end uh, Queen Elizabeth's reign, the formal formal reformation is essentially over. Uh, Though it had started with new ideas being preached by new leaders... By this time, several doctrinal schools had been established within the Protestant sphere. The spirit of the Reformation was really no longer uh, prevalent. Instead, you had several groups who had each staked out their theological territory and were ardent defenders of that territory. So in addition to the Catholics, you had Lutherans, the Reformed Church, and even smaller groups like the early Baptists. And for each one, if you were in their midst and spoke against their cardinal doctrines, you would expect... Be banished with, pre- with prejudice. So it's into this kind of settled environment that the Puritans come onto the scene. They were a group of English clergy and laypeople who, from about 1550 to 1662, were intent on purifying the Church of England by shaping it in structure and vision to the Bible. They saw the Reformation as a good start, uh, but not yet finished, especially in England. Uh, They were the reformers of the Reformation, if you will. The name Puritan was given as a pejorative slur by their enemies, and the name stuck. It's fair to say that their main goal was to continue the Reformation in England by removing Roman Catholic practices from the church. Beyond that, it's kind of difficult to give any single definition. Uh, They were a a widely varied group of people. Uh, On the one hand, you had the poet John Milton. Uh, who did not even believe in the Trinity. And on the other hand, you had precise and orthodox theologians like John Owen and Jonathan Edwards. Uh, Puritans are often associated with strictness, asceticism, and anything the, op- the opposite of fun. Uh, there are some who took that intention, uh, their intention to reform to that level, to be sure. But in contrast, you have men like John Owen, who is described like this as he would walk through Oxford. Oxford hair-powdered, cambric, that's a very expensive fabric, cambric band with large, costly band strings, velvet jacket, breeches set around at the knees with ribbons pointed, and Spanish leather boots with cambric tops. So obviously not somebody who's an asceticist, right? Uh, It was not uncommon for them to enjoy beer and loud company with friends. Uh, By first-hand accounts, they were a colorful people who enjoyed the colorful world that God had made. Uh, in addition to their desire to keep reforming, the other thing that can be said to be common about biblical Puritans is their passionate love for the Bible, for Bible study, and for listening to sermons. Again and again we hear of Puritans happily traveling hours to hear a good long sermon, seven hours at times, okay, uh, and of how they thought a good Bible study better than an evening's dancing. Uh, their desire was not About mere external conformity or expression. They passionately wanted to see individual people transformed at the heart level to a more faithful, closer walk with Christ. And as a result, their favorite solas were Sola Fide and Sola Scriptura. Next slide. their view of scripture dramatically changed their churches. So remember coming out of the, the Catholic Church in the Reformation, and the, the, particularly the Reformation in England, looked still very much like the Catholic Church. Um, so, but, but these guys really you know, changed up the way uh, church services worked. Previously in Roman Catholicism, the Mass and infant baptism, not the preaching of God's Word, were emblematic of the means of salvation. And you see, you see this reflected in their architecture. The baptismal font was at the front door of the church. The altar for the mass was at the center. The pulpit was pushed off to the side because sermons, if there was one, only lasted 5 to 10 minutes. By contrast, in Puritan churches, the preaching of the word of God moved to the center of the worship service and was given from an elevated pulpit in the center of the room. As you might imagine... Uh, their, their view on sola, sola fide and sola scriptura Also dramatically changed the role of the pastor Instead of someone who performed the mass Or read a brief homily He was to be a preacher And a, and a shepherd of God's flock Thus arose, there, there arose an intense concern For training men for ministry And ensuring that only gifted, trained men Served as pastors In the 16th century They had their work cut out for them In 1551, Bishop John Hooper surveyed the ministers in his diocese and asked the following questions. How many commandments are there? Where are they to be found? Repeat them. What are the articles of the Christian faith and prove them from scripture? Repeat the Lord's Prayer. How do you know it's the Lord's? And where can it be found? Out of 311 clergy, only 50 could answer these questions. And 19 of those did so poorly... Ten of them did not know the Lord's prayer, and eight couldn't could not answer a single question. So you can see that there was a that there was a bit of a rough go, and the Puritans wanted to change this so that you had men who were who were well trained to be able to preach the word to God's people. Next slide. So let's get into the let's get into the the history of the situation, and we're going to cover this in two kind of in two batches. We're going to see. How the Puritans kind of moved through history in England. And then we're going to go move over and look uh, how they were moving through history in the Americas. Because it's during this period of time that you have the first English colonies being established. So uh, uh, Jamestown was established in 1608. That's early in our early in our period of time for, for today. Um, and then we'll talk about the, the Puritan colonies in Massachusetts were in the 1620s. So if you were here last week, we talked about the shape of the Church of England as it developed under the reigns of Henry VIII, uh, Edward VI, Bloody Mary, and Queen Elizabeth. During the Elizabethan period, the Church maintained a balance between a Reformed, moderately Calvinist theology uh, with a practice and government that appear more Romish. So Episcopacy... Uh, recitations, saints, holidays, vestments, etc. were all still common within the Church of England. The Puritans wanted to see the Reformation fully affect the Church in England the way it had on the mainland. During the reign of Bloody Mary, these guys had been exiled or had left England for a period of time and were involved in the churches of the Reformation uh, on the the main continent. And those had not retained some of these Romish kinds of of trappings, and they wanted to see those gone. So they wanted to abolish the bishops, have presbyteries, uh, and some were even congregationalists. Now, Elizabeth died in 1603. She had no children, and her rightful heir was James VI of Scotland, who was also named, known as James I of England. Uh, Scotland's church was already Presbyterian at that time. John Knox had founded it in the 1500s. So the Puritans looked with great hope at what would happen with James's ascension to the throne. In anticipation of that, immediately, even before he made it to London, the the Puritans, with the support of several representatives in the House of Commons who were Puritans, submitted to him a long list of things that they wanted to see reformed in the church. They wanted the banishment of the Catholic Rite of Confirmation, which they saw as unscriptural. They didn't want uh, everybody to be bowing at the name of Jesus every time Jesus was mentioned during worship. Again, unscriptural. Um, They wanted to have teaching ministers in every church. Instead of just having people who read the Book of Common, the Book of Common Prayer. Uh, they wanted to replace the Episcopal system with a church government with a Presbyterian one. They wanted a new translation of the Bible, among many other things. So in 1604, James calls the Hampton Court Conference, where he hears their grievances. And at the end, he granted none of them. So the Puritans were mostly let down by James. Except... ...for the commissioning of a new Bible. The King James Version of the Bible was commissioned by King James I. It was a masterwork of the English language... ...and a faithful translation of the Hebrew and Greek Scriptures. Uh, but life under James's rule was not all bad for them. Even though they didn't have the official support uh, they desired... ...public opinion still swung away from the Catholic Church... Uh, ...towards the Puritans during this time. For example, the Puritans foiled a Catholic plot to kill the king... If you want to know about that, you can ask Brad about Guy Fawkes and the Gunpowder Plot. Reportedly, it's one of his favorite holidays. Uh, next slide, please. Um, but when James, So when James died and his son Charles I came to the throne, uh, uh, things kind of took a turn for the worse. Um, so even though they, they didn't get what they wanted out of uh, James, he was still a friend to them in general. Uh, but, but, under, but under Charles I, things took, kind of took some steps backwards. Um, he married a Roman Catholic, the sister of King Louis XIII of France, and so he was sympathetic to many Catholic teachings. Uh, there was also a growing Arminian presence in the Church of England uh, that, changed the theo- that challenged the theology of Calvinism and emphasized more ceremonial worship, the use of sacraments, and a high view of the clerical vocation, which looked to many like Romish drift. Next slide. Uh, King Charles appointed William Laud as the Archbishop of Canterbury in 16, 1633. It's a picture of him here. Uh, he was openly an Arminian and often suspected of being a Catholic. Laud was the great enemy of Puritanism in England during this time. He ordered the death he ordered death warrants and orders of mutilations against Puritans, and his signature phrase was "Harry them out of the land," a policy that resulted in the Great Migration much of which was to America. A man very close to Charles I and easily inflamed by silly disputes, one modern historian has called him the greatest calamity ever, ever visited upon the English church. Uh, what follows in the middle of the 1600s is a complex series of events that we don't have a lot of time to go into, but it led to, this, to the British or English Civil War uh, between Parliament and the King. Parliament became more and more heavily Puritan during this time, and of course, the king was representing a, a Catholic uh, viewpoint, or at least a Catholic-style viewpoint, um, and and that eventually led to the civil war. Uh, they fought that war, and eventually the Puritans won. Uh, and Charles, King Charles, was uh, tried and beheaded. Go ahead to the, go to the next slide. Um, so Charles was 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 beheaded, and here you can't really see it very well because of how poor our projector is, but. Up on the stump there, you can see there, the, this is a popular uh, piece of artwork depicting that event. Uh, next slide again, please. One major event in the story of Puritanism happened uh, right during this period of Civil War. So uh, 1642 to 1648, under the direction of Parliament, over 100 Puritan leaders assembled at Westminster Abbey to draft a new confession of faith for the National Church. They were hopeful that during this period of time of... Of war, uh, That they were going to get rid of the Catholics and they were going to get rid of what we now know as the Church of England, essentially, and establish a new kind of church. So they were looking to put together the, the, the founding documents, if you will, of this new national church. Uh, though they generally agreed on Calvinistic theology, differences arose between the majority who advocated a Presbyterian church uh, and a small but vocal minority of independents led by Thomas Goodwin, who argued for the right of congregations to govern themselves? So Presbyterian government has has a, a, a hierarchical structure, uh, whereas some of these guys were essentially arguing for congregationalism. Excuse me. Uh, they finally reached a compromise that advocated the voluntary formation of congregational presbyteries throughout the, throughout the country. Uh, the Church of Scotland immediately approved the Westminster Confession upon its completion in 1647. Followed by the Congregationalists in New England in 1648, and then a decade later, the English Congregationalists meeting in London adopted the Westminster Confession in their Savoir Declaration in 1658. So, very important set of doc- documents. If you've never read the uh, Westminster Confession of Faith or gone over the Westminster Catechism, highly, highly, highly recommend it. It's one of the it's one of the, the documents that we. Uh, believe is very important to the church and we believe here in, at redeeming grace church it 's not one of our official documents that that everybody agrees to that's that 's just the 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 Baptist, the Baptist general Con- Conference confession of faith uh, but still it still captures in large part the, the things that we believe and very much worth your time to read over. Uh, next slide. the period after the Civil War from sixteen forty nine to sixteen sixty is known as the Interregnum. There was no king in place during this time. So it was the, inter, the the time between reigns, the Interregnum, during which England functioned like a republic with the leading general of the par- parli- parliaments, parliament's army, Oliver Cromwell, this guy. Some of you may have heard of him in your history classes. Oliver Car- Cromwell at the helm as the Lord Protector uh, because he, refu- he actually refused to take the crown. They wanted to make him the king, but he didn't want it. Cromwell was a Puritan, and set about, set about a program of reformation in church and state, resulting in greater religious toleration uh, for different subgroups within Protestantism. However, on the other side of things, he also, and the Puritans, also advocated for a strict Christian code of conduct. Uh, and that conduct was expected and very strictly uh, enforced. So ordinary citizens were expected to live like true Christian believers, which, of course, didn't work out very well. Uh, They didn't like it, and support for the Puritans began to wane. And there, there was resistance against Puritan uh, policies within the government. Cromwell died in 1658, and as a result, King Charles uh, Charles II, son of Charles I, was invited to take the throne in order to restore order in the government. Next slide, please. So this is Charles II. With him came a return to the Episcopal structure for the church and a return to the Book of Common Prayer. So he was following in his father's footsteps. Uh, He picked up where his dad left off, trying to harry all the Puritans who had multiplied like rabbits during the interregnum. He wanted them out of England. uh, And later, even on his deathbed, Charles Charles II would confess himself to be a Catholic. Uh, He passed a law that every minister must agree to every word of the Book of Common Prayer by St. Bartholomew's Day in 1662, or else resign their pulpit. pulpit. So as a result, on August 24th of that year, 2,000 of the 6,000 pastors in England resigned at great economic risk to themselves and could not be around the people that they pastored. This is known as the Great Ejection. And it was a real blow to three denominations that had been growing in the freedom of the interregnum the Baptists, the Congregationalists, and the Presbyterians. These ejected pastors began to spread these churches illegally throughout England. They were called separatists as a a collective body. This, in many ways, is the end of the Puritan period in England. Because they were kicked out of the churches, they were no longer there to reform them, but instead they were planting new churches instead. Uh, also, between 1662 and the 1870s, you could not be educated at Cambridge or Oxford if you objected to any portion of the Book of Common Prayer. So 1662 represented the end of Puritan formal education in England. All right, questions there. Do we have any questions about what was happening in England? We're about to switch to, switch to the Americas. Uh, but any questions about what was happening in England, historically speaking? Yeah, there, there's a number. There's a number of places that their that their uh, bad reputation comes from. They were certainly maligned in England at the time. It was in England that the Puritan uh, name came about, and that was not given kindly. That was given as a, a pejorative. They were wanting, you know, to purify everything. They were they wanted to be strict about things. They wanted they weren't happy with the way things were, even though kind of most of the common population was fine with the way things were. Um, so that's the beginning of it. Although, certainly, they didn't have the reputation that we see. The reputation that we see is actually more of a uh, 20th, early 20th century fabrication. I had that quote by H.L. Mencken uh, from the Baltimore Sun. Um, and that, that was given around the time of, of, of the uh, – uh, my words are not here. Time when you couldn't drink anything. Uh, <laughs> um, and uh, so there were lots of people who were, who were critical of those policies in the United States at the time, and they were labeled as puritanical. Um, you know, and there' was also stories All the, all the uh, portraiture that you see of Puritans, of course, is very straight-faced, although, you know, this guy isn't exactly smiling, and he's not a Puritan. Uh, but, no, but nobody smiles in portraits from this time. They're all wearing black. Because that was the formal dress of their time. When you sat for your portrait, what did you wear? You wore your Sunday best, right? So, so that those kinds of things all contributed to this kind of straight-laced, no-party, no-fun kind of thing. And then you're, when you're looking for adjectives to describe people who were in support of, of prohibition, that's what kind of came out. And that's really where our popular con- conception of puritanical comes from today more than anything else. Yeah. Other questions? All right, we'll collect them together, and we hopefully we'll have some time at the end. Shift our focus to, uh, across the Atlantic to see what was happening in the American colonies. Next slide, please. Uh, starting in the early 1600s, during King James, the fir- King James I's reign, many Puritans saw little hope for reforming the church in England. So they began to look elsewhere to establish their own purely Protestant, reformed Christian community. Uh, they wanted it to serve as a model for the English church, so it had to be far enough away... in order to have freedom but close enough to be observed and the solution was North America Uh, in 1628 a group of Puritans created the Massachusetts Bay Company and they took their charter with them to establish its headquarters in America so that way they could run their business outside of the the, kind of the restraints of English law and without interference from from Parliament Um, they did not desire to separate from the Church of England in any way they simply wanted the chance to set up a congregation that operated on Puritan principles to be an example to the church back home in England. So this is this actually, although the idea has gotten, you know, kind of moved around some. It's these guys that promoted the idea of a church of a, a city on a hill to be to be to be observed, right? So they sailed for the New World on the on the ship the Arabella, led by John Winthrop. <coughs> excuse me, who would serve as the governor for most of the first two decades of the colony. Winthrop described himself and his people as a company, professing ourselves fellow members of Christ, and while he believed that the Lord will be our God and will delight to dwell among us as his own people, and will command his blessing upon us in all our ways, Winthrop also invoked divine judgment on himself and his fellow Christians should they break their covenant with God. Here's that famous quote, "...we shall be as a city upon a hill." That's usually where we stop, but listen to the rest. The eyes of all people are upon us, so that if we shall deal falsely with our God in His work we have undertaken, and so cause Him to withdraw His present help from us, we shall be made a story and a byword throughout the world. That was the real intention of the city on a hill—not to not to not to set up this kind of uh, you know monkish kinds of kind of settlement, but to be something that was an example to back home and. Really looking to, to stay faithful to that. They recognized that though they hoped to be a light to the world, if they were not faithful to, to God, uh, he would remove his blessing and they would fail. In all about 10,000 Puritans fled during Laud's reign in the 1630s. Fled to the, fled to the United States or to the Americas. Next slide. So in addition to this Puritan colony that came... We also have the pilgrims. Now the pilgrims were different from the Puritans. They were a subgroup, they were contained inside, but they're not those are not synonymous terms. The the pilgrims were different because they were separatists. They didn't they did not want to seek to reform the Church of England they, or be a model for it. They sought to be independent and separate from it. So they had originally left England for the Netherlands around sixteen oh eight. But they were dissatisfied there They really didn't find the freedoms that they were hoping for So they set, they set sail for America on the Mayflower And landed in 1620 at Plymouth uh, This set, settlement predated Winthrop and the Massachusetts Bay Colony By about eight years Their intended target had been Jamestown uh, Based on, a, on an agreement that they had with the Virginia Company of London But they were blown off course and landed in Massachusetts instead When they landed, they formed their own political body governed by the rules laid out in the Mayflower Compact. Again, a document you probably heard of in your your American history class. Very important document as it laid out some of the foundational ideas uh, that were later included in our founding documents as a a nation. Although they wanted to be be separate, the desire uh, was still to be free and to live the Christian life according to the convictions governed by and consistent with Scripture. Uh, After this... After these two kind of colonies were established, other Puritan groups came and also established colonies here too, or communities within the colonies. Uh, Thomas Hooker founded Hartford, Connecticut in 1636. Uh, John Davenport founded New Haven in 1638. Um, And in the the period of the Interregnum in the 1650s, many Puritans moved back to England actually. So there was a bit of a, a, a reverse migration that happened because of all the good things that were happening there. But then with the restoration of the monarchy uh, and the the actions of Charles II, they all kind of came back and resettled back into America again. Uh, Next slide. Central to the Puritan vision in the U.S. uh, or in the Americas for the church and for Christian life was this idea of covenant. Uh, Churches, families, government, and society were organized around this idea of covenant in the Americas. Think of a covenant (laughs) as an agreement for the individual... One is saved because God gives Christ righteousness as atonement for your sin, and you in turn live in faith to God. And God, of course, is faithful not to break the covenant. Uh, the church consists of individual Christians who covenant together to serve God. Okay, So this idea of covenant was prevalent everywhere. And the Puritans' idea was this. God makes a covenant with nations when they glorify him. So if disaster strikes, then it is a warning that people were not living up to the, their covenant obligations. So they would call on everyone to fast and repent in times of trouble. So you can see how this covenant view envisions a society that is holistically Christian, where both secular and sacred life are tied together in a sacred covenant between the people and with God. So a practical outworking of this. The Puritan Meeting House... In the, so think about the, 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 t- the quintessential New England town, right? In the middle is the meeting house. That's the Puritan meeting house. And it was in the center of town. It's where the church gathered. And it's where their community conducted business. And, it's where the, and it was also the government seat. Now those things were still separate in large ways. But they were all together in the same building. Because they were all there under the same covenant. So the entry point into this covenant society was infant baptism. Through baptism you became a member of the church and were therefore qualified to participate in government and to vote. This worked, out, this worked without a problem in the first generation because most Puritans who came over from England were converted Christians, but this changed, began to change over time. Baptism was understood as a seal of the covenant of grace, but in the second generation, many who were baptized based on the fact that their parents were converted were not stepping up to profess Christ. They, and then they had children... And they had children after them. And so the Puritans faced a dilemma. They wanted to keep church membership as a truly, convert, a truly converted body of Christians. They, they understood that that was the right thing. But they also wanted to maintain the church's influence over the people in society. Because they felt like that was a good thing. Um, so what should they do with all the children of the unbelievers who are now in their churches? Their solution was the halfway covenant of 1662. Uh, which allowed the children of unconverted members of the church to still be baptized. So typically speaking in a in a, in a, uh, a, a, a baptist church where infants are baptized, it's baptized on the strength of the fact that their parents are believers. So this halfway covenant was put into place such that if you were not a believer, but you were a member in good standing of the church, your kids could still be baptized. Uh, so, it was, But it was a halfway membership. uh. In that those people were not allowed to take the Lord's Supper until later when they had confirmed their baptism through a personal confession of faith. So this halfway membership that preserved the interlocking system of individual church and society while still trying to recognize that full membership required a personal commitment to to Christ through faith alone. Uh, This really shows how quickly the Puritan community was compromising with the world. Uh, Another mark of this drift from Puritan principles was that they founded Harvard... In 1636 to educate ministers, but by 1701, so that's only 70 years later, not quite 70 years um, later, they had to found Yale because Harvard had drifted so far from Puritan principles that it was no longer a Puritan school. By 1700 in America, Puritanism had died as a reform movement, uh, but its evangelical piety, in other words, the the trappings that that went along with it, would live on, and we're going to start to see that in our future sessions uh, in the In the coming weeks, uh, questions on the history of the situation before we turn to what Puritans thought and believed you've mentioned separatists a couple of times, yeah. Yeah, they actually weren't all that radical. The separatists were primarily... So Church of, in England, you have an official church. It is the Church of England. Anybody who was not part of the Church of England was considered to be a separatist. Now, the, with, the, with the exception of Catholics. Catholics were their own thing, right? So the Catholic Church was its own thing. But if you were a Protestant and not part of the Church of England, you were called a separatist. Because you were separate from... So it really wasn't all that... In, in, as, a, as a broad category, it wasn't all that radical. Now, did you have radicals that were involved in that? Sure, right? But like Puritan, which covered a wide range of different people. I mean, Puritans were Baptists, Presbyterians, Congregationalists, uh, you know, Episcopalians. Right? They, there was people who were Puritan who had no desire to separate from the Church of England, right? So that covered a wide range. Same thing was true of Separatists. It just were those, it's the subset of those who were not actually part of Church of England anymore. And there were periods of time when they were dissidents in some sense because they were, it was illegal to be part of a church that was outside of the Church of England. So during those points of time, they were considered to be dissident as well as just separate. But they weren't necessarily radicals. John Bunyan was a separatist, for example. The Puritans, as you have uh, described them, almost had kind of like a, like a health well gospel kind of feel to them in a, in a way that, you know, if things aren't going well, they're calling for fasting, and then secular life is so tied to spiritual life that God's God's blessing and grace on them is shown by their circumstances. Is that, is that an appropriate conclusion? Or, I mean, they just seem to be very, very tied to the physical as a result directly of God's pleasure with them. They were, I, would not, I would not put them in any way, shape, or form into a health and wealth gospel kind of idea. They weren't that. They were very strong integrationists. We're going to talk about that concept in a minute. Everything for life was integrated for them. There was no part of life that wasn't part of the Christian experience. And because of that integration, they saw all things as being very closely tied together. And that being said, there was a sense more so than we have today... Of, you know, if things aren't going well, that might be God showing his displeasure to us. And that's something that we've kind of continued to reform and continued to, an idea that we haven't kind of held on to. That was still a Puritan, a kind of a common among Puritan thinkers. I don't know that I would call it a Puritan idea, but it was still common among Puritan thinkers. But it was common amongst everybody who was of faith at that time, Puritan or not Puritan. If, if things, bad things were happening to you, it was because God was not happy with what was going on. So that was a fair, just a fairly common understanding of, of the way life worked. Do you have a question? Yeah, i was just curious where the Anabaptists fit into that. Mm-hmm. Sort of Puritan, uh, over, so. Yeah, uh, they're around. The Anabaptists are uh, the Anabaptists predate Puritanism by quite a bit, um, so they go back all, all the way to the beginning of the Reformation. Uh, they were a subgroup. Generally, we, there's lots of things the Anabaptists believe that we would not. Hold to, except the idea of believers' baptism. Um, so, uh, so they were around, and there were Anabaptist groups, but they were, they were often dissidents. They were often people who were rebelling against the culture around them. Um, and uh, we haven't covered them very much, because they are such a splinter group. Uh, we're going to start talking about Baptists more, and we're going to have a couple of sessions towards the end, that focus pretty specifically on Baptist history. And so in one of our last sessions, we'll be covering that topic. And it's one of the reasons we aren't covering here as much. We're mentioning them, but we're not covering Baptist history per se. So we're going to have a whole session kind of devoted to that. Yeah. All right. Well, let me just continue on here so we can finish up, and then we can maybe have time for questions at the end. Uh, I want to shift our attention away from the history a little bit. Um, and to think about a little bit about how is it that we benefit from Puritans today. Because uh, there's tons of stuff that we can benefit from, from understanding and, and learning about the Puritans. So I want to talk for a, a bit about uh, Puritan spirituality and theology. So what did their spirituality look like? We talked, about, we talked earlier about how uh, they have this reputation of kind of being dour, stiff, lifeless people and as a movement that's often, you know, it's often associated with those kinds of terms in today's world, but they were supremely interested in living a godly life and the fact that we conclude that it must therefore be negative um, is more a reflection on us and the weakness of our devotion than it is a reflection on the quality of life that they lived. Uh, like I said earlier, they were, they were in pubs and drinking beers with their friends. And they, you know, by all accounts, they dressed very colorfully. They were, they were generally very happy people um, and advocated for enjoying this life strongly. Um, but they did have this dimension where they wanted everything, literally everything, to be under the influence of the scriptures and were... You know, strongly introspective about, am I a believer? Am I following Christ? All of those things are true. You take that out, and I think that it's our lack of interest in that that makes it seem like, well, their life must have been boring. Their life must have been stiff. Their life must have been unenjoyable. It's because we don't enjoy God the way they did. Um, So they were preachers and they were writers and evangelists at heart. Uh, they ha- uh, and the, they were men who were utterly convinced that the word of God was powerful when it was applied to the heart and lived out in practice. And that's why Puritans can still have an enduring, uh, enduring ministry, ministry today. Theologically speaking, they were committed to the five solos of the Reformation. Uh, they were com- committed to a robust, robust view of the sovereignty of God in all things and Reformed theology as expressed in the Westminster Confession. Uh, in terms of the Christian life, J.I. Packer invested a lot of time in studying the Puritans, and he's suggested six specific areas where Puritan thinking can be helpful to us today. And these are all out of this book that I recommended earlier, A Quest for Godliness. Um, So the first is integration of their daily lives. This is what I was referring to a second ago. Everything they thought, said, and did was seen as sacred. All facets of life were the glory of God. For example, there was no separation between heart and head in in their minds. Their knowledge of God stirred their love and passion for God and vice versa. They would also see no separation between sacred and secular in the work realm. All vocations were to be done to the glory of God. doesn't matter whether you were a janitor or a preacher. You were doing God's work at all times. Uh, number two, uh, the quality of their spiritual experience it can, can instruct us. They constantly meditated on scripture and on the Lord. And engaged in intense self-examination in light of those truths. Their desire was to see all areas of their lives transformed by the word. And experience great joy at seeing God work in them through faithful application of the word. That brought them a huge amount of joy. That's why they loved going to to hear a sermon and having a Bible study more than going out dancing. Because they really enjoyed seeing God work. Uh, Third, their passion for effective action. Packer writes that they were men of action in the pure reformed mold, crusading activists without a jolt of self-reliance, workers for God who depended utterly on Him to work in and through them, and who always gave God the praise for anything they did that in retrospect seemed to, have to, to them to have been right. They were doctors of the soul, caring well for Christians by examining the condition of each one's soul and asking tough questions about their lives, and if there were signs of God's grace and renewal in their lives, they rejoiced at that. Uh, fourth, their program for family stability. This one was so good, I just want to quote Packer at length. Because it illustrates how grounded and helpful Puritan thought is. And how far away it is from this kind of stiff, uh, joyless, and uh, you know, uh, you know, kind of stereotype that we have of Puritans. It is hardly too much to say that the Puritans created the Christian family in the English-speaking world. The Puritan ethic of marriage uh, was to look not for a partner whom you do love passionately at this moment, but rather for one whom you can love steadily as your best friend for life, and then to proceed with God's help to do just that. The Puritan ethic of nurture was to train up children in the way they should go, to care for their bodies and souls together, and to educate them for sober, godly, socially useful adult living. The Puritan ethic of home life was based on maintaining order, courtesy, and family worship. Goodwill, patience, consistency, and an encouraging attitude were seen as the essential domestic virtues. In an age of routine discomforts, rudimentary medicine without painkillers, frequent bereavements, an average life expectancy of just under 30 years, and an economic hardship for almost all save merchant princes and landed gentry, family life was a school of character in every sense. And the fortitude with which the Puritans resisted the all-too-familiar temptation to relieve pressure from the world by brutality at home and labored to honor God and their families despite all merits supreme praise. At home, the Puritans showed themselves mature, accepting hardships and disappointments realistically as from God and refusing to be daunted or soured by any of them. Also, it was at home, in the first instance, that the Puritan laymen practiced evangelism and ministry. In an era... era in which family life has become brittle even among Christians, with chicken hearted spouses taking the easy course of separation rather than working at their relationship, and narcissistic parents spoiling their children materially while neglecting them spiritually, there is once more much to be learned from the Puritans very different ways. That's what he had to say about just his short summary of Puritan life at home. I thought that was gold. Uh, fifth idea uh, that we can learn from the Puritans their sense of human worth. The Puritans were convinced that every human has dignity because they are created in the image of God. Didn't matter who you were, didn't matter what you were, didn't matter what, what philosophy you came from, you were to be accorded dignity because you were uh, made in the image of God. The notion from the Declaration of Independence that all men were created equal and that they are endowed by their Creator with certain unalienable rights is a very Puritan idea. Uh, number six, their idea of church renewal. They always sought God's reforming and reviving work through the local church. And especially in the spiritual reformation of souls coming to faith and living and worshiping in conformance with the Bible. Next slide. Did we get far enough? Yeah. Well, actually, next slide after that. <laughs> I forgot to ask one. Yeah. Uh, so Puritan authors and writings. Um, so the way to access and benefit from the Puritans is through reading. They wrote massive amounts of stuff. I mean, this just barely scratches the surface of the authors and writers uh, that are in the Puritan tradition. There are prolific authors being convinced as they were that deep consideration and application of the Bible is the key to Christian living. But if you've read anything by them, you know that they can be a bit challenging. The language is old, uh, and they wrote deeply. Uh, When they wrote about something, they really wrote about it. What they like to do is they like to take an idea, and they treated it as a precious gem. And they would stare at it. And the way the light was refracted through it. And they would write about it. And they would stare at it some more. And they would write about it some more. And then when they were done, they would turn it. Just a little bit. So that it refracted a little bit differently. And then they would do it all again. And then they would turn it again. And they would talk about it even more. So they went deep. And, and reading the Puritans um, is a meditative practice. Not a quick read practice. So when you pick up one of their books, expect to be extremely blessed. But expect to spend some time. Uh, many Puritan books are collections of sermons, though not all are. Uh, even those who, that are not uh, have been given. Uh, sorry, even those that are not could have been given as sermons because of their clear pastoral tone with which many of the Puritans wrote. Uh, and the most one of the most famous books was, of course, John Punyan's Pilgrim's Progress, which is a story. So you have a wide range of, of, of literary genres that are present. Um, By the way, uh, just as a plug for our Wednesday gatherings, last summer we read Pilgrim's Progress. This summer we're going to be reading Pilgrim's Progress Part 2, which is the journey of his wife, Christiana, going to the Celestial City. So come on out and enjoy uh, some good Puritan literature with us uh, this summer. Uh, So many of the Puritans have published their writing that it's nearly impossible to give even a representative sample, but i have attempted to gather here some... What some have said are the best. Um, and you can see, even in some of these titles, they're pastoral heart, right? Uh, precious remedies against Satan's devices, right? Uh, you can see that these guys had a desire to affect people's lives in a real way. The ones that are in red here, and I know these are kind of hard to read. The slides will be on the website after this, after the session. The ones that I've got marked in red are particularly good ones to start with. They're easy Puritans to read, and they've got really good content that will bless your souls. So um, be, fo- be sure to avail yourselves of that. Any questions about the Puritans? We're, we're going to have to cut ourselves off there. Um, and that's the content that we have for today. Yeah, Carol. When you talked about the halfway the covenant, mm-hmm. the children being baptized so that they could attend the church, is that the only reason they baptized? Well, they were baptized. You have, to, you have to see that the, the culture they came out of was a paedo-baptist culture. So the, 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 the theology already supported baptizing infants already. So they were baptizing infants regardless. The question came in is, okay, we've got people who are professed unbelievers, but they're still members. They have not come to faith. And the, and the Puritans understood... They understood sola fide. You have to come to personal faith in Christ in order to be saved. So they they understood that. Uh, but their, their question was, you know, our inter- our church and our society are so much integrated. What do we do with all these people who are not coming to Christ and yet have kids? And the way we've set up society is, in order to be a member of society, you have to be a member of the church. What do we do? And instead of Standing firm on on biblical principles, they strayed away from that and said, "We've got to protect our so- our civil society, as opposed to protecting the protecting the gospel." And that's where you see some of the beginning of the drift. Does that answer the question? you're Yes. Yes. So Valley of Vision, I actually added. I had intended to put that up here. Valley of Vision is a, a modern collection Of the prayers of Puritan Pastors and teachers um, And so the, the language has been modernized a little bit and, the, and they've been compiled Kind of thematically But yes Valley of Vision are all prayers by, Pur, by Puritans that, were, that have been written down at various points in time Yes uh, So yeah um, One of the books that's very good Is The Rare Jewel of Christian Contentment the book that I have listed underneath it is a modern condensation of that book, um, so it 's very much smaller and the ladies did it a couple years ago as as their as uh, one of their flourish books yeah. yeah Good other questions? All right, well, let me pray for us. Father in heaven, we thank you for your, your, your work in history again. Uh, we continue to be amazed at how your church has been preserved over time continue to see, continue to benefit from seeing how things develop and the, the battles that are fought over the gospel and Lord we are just thankful that we have a church and we are part of a church tradition uh, that is still present and still here because of your preserving work continue Lord to preserve us help us to have ref- reforming uh, uh, attitudes and reforming minds always seeking to see Uh, ourselves brought into closer conformance with the scriptures in the way that the Puritans were. So we thank you for their influence in our lives and praise you. We thank you for our church service coming up and ask that you would bless us uh, in our worship of you. It's in Jesus' name we pray. Amen. Once again, just by way of reminder, don't forget to sign up for the marriage retreat if you're interested in going.